Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Praise the Lord. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord this morning? God bless you. You may be seated. I got the distinct feeling a knuckle sandwich from Sister Amy might be a little rough, hadn't it? I'm sure Brother Darrell could tell us about that. Praise the Lord. Go with me with the, to the book of Jonah, chapter 4, this morning, if you will, and you can re- remain seated. We're dealing with our series entitled, God is Faithful. And today our lesson, lesson number two, is going to be entitled, Three Days in the Deep. I think we're all familiar with the book of Jonah and with the story of Jonah. And... Uh, There's way more to this story than him just being in the belly of the whale. There's there's a lot that can come out of the story that you can learn not only about Jonah, but I find a lot of myself in the book of Jonah that I have to work on day in and day out. The book of Jonah chapter 4 and verse 4. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? And that'll be all of our text this morning. And I wonder how many times the Lord has asked us, doest thou well to be angry? What, what are you angry about? And the truth about God that we must understand is that God's grace and mercy extends to everyone. God doesn't love me any more than he loves anyone else. I say this with great respect, but the sinner that is, that's home this morning that's hung over because they stayed till the bar, till the, at the bar till 2 o'clock last night, God loves them just as much as he loves me. And in, if God loves them that much, then we must love them that much. And I think everybody in here would agree with me, you cannot go to heaven with hate in your heart. If you don't love your brother... If you don't love your sister, if you don't love all of mankind, it's clearly stated in the Bible, you will not make heaven your home. Sister Amy talked about our prayer points this morning about rejoicing in God's mercy to my enemies. And that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes, but it's very important. I'm going to read you a little bit of history here this morning. The very first world war brought levels of destruction previously unthinkable to humanity. Although other wars had occurred throughout history, World War I introduced new technologies into battles that spread around the globe. Never had the earth been so connected and never had the earth been so divided. With great effort, much bloodshed, and a generation of lives lost to a fight, the Allies triumphed and the victory came at a great cost. Millions of soldiers died in the raging battles and military action, disease, and hunger associated 
causes reap the lives of millions of civilians. It has been rumored that the war unsurprisingly ended, ended with the bold promise and proclamation of never again. And the Allies lay the blame firmly at the feet of Germany for being the cause of World War I. And so in order to avoid history repeating itself, the Allies vowed to sufficiently punish Germany. No one would have thought it unmerciful or unjust to harshly judge Germany for the atrocities committed and the huge death toll that arose. In fact, many would have deemed it a gross and negligent betrayal of justice not to pour out wrath on Germany. There were policies enacted to severely punish Germany and the citizens for the Great War. Germany became a shell of its former self. Its economic power and might quickly disappeared and it was transformed into poverty and sickness and weakness. Observers deemed such punishment well-deserved and perhaps not even harsh enough. Surely these measures, no matter how extreme, would save this planet from another world war, especially from the schemes of a defamed Germany. They could not have been more wrong. The seeds of judgment sowed the seeds for the next world war. The people of Germany lived in hunger and poverty and most Germans used their paper money as fuel to keep themselves warm since their currency had no purchasing power. And in their desperation, the German people looked for a leader. Anyone would do. And so when Adolf Hitler rose to power, he brought Germany back from the brink of destruction. And then he took the entire world beyond the brink of disaster and over the edge into the most vicious fighting and atrocious treatment of human beings ever imagined. World War II not only featured bloody battles, but the Holocaust claimed the lives of around six million Jews. Germany also murdered five million prisoners of war. The Allies ultimately achieved victory, but can such horrific losses truly be considered a victory? And how is today's world different due to the deaths of so many innocents? How is the world different today because all of those people died? Could mercy have prevented World War II? Had the rest of the world shown mercy to Germany, it is possible, it is very possible we could have avoided that catastrophe. And even though Germany deserved some punishment, could it be that the world went too far in their punishment? If every action has an equal and opposite reaction, then brutal punishment may also lead to brutal actions. And that is why James said in chapter 3 and verse 18, but if we act peacefully and mercifully, perhaps we can reap a better harvest of peace and righteousness. We read about Jonah this morning, and so Nineveh was a huge city in the ancient world, and numerous people traveled to this metropolis because it had many opportunities and it had a bustling economy, and it was strategically centered and provided a lot of trade. And so uh, Nineveh is now present-day Mosul in Iraq, and the city of Nineveh took its name from its goddess Ishtar. And that name most likely meant the house of goddess. And the leaders of the Assyrian Empire who controlled Nineveh featured a who's who of ancient history. The great lawgiver Harumbai, known for his famous code, conquered the regions. Shalmaneser built walls, a palace, and a temple in the city. 
and Tiglath-Pelzer helped to strengthen Assyrian powder. And later the city and the Assyrian dominance became greater with the rise of a Neo-Assyrian empire and it began in 911 B.C. Nineveh was a beautiful city. It featured palaces and temples and paintings and gardens that all added to its splendor. In fact, the city included the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Gardens like that one and others could flourish since citizens had easy access to water due to the aqueduct system. And despite Nineveh's wonders, the prophet Jonah hated the city and he hated the Assyrians. And we can date Jonah to around the 8th century B.C. and the events in his time and beyond fueled the flames of animosity against the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire greatly affected politics in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and the Syrians in the northern kingdom of Israel formed an alliance to defeat the Assyrians. Seeking troops from, from Judah, they attempted to dispose of King Ahaz and they set up a puppet king during the Syro-Ephraimite War. And despite Isaiah's warnings, King Ahaz still sought help from the Assyrians and ended up paying a great deal, a great price of tribute. The Assyrians eventually defeated the coalition of Syrian and Israelite troops. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians destroyed Samaria and deported all of the Israelites. Some of these northerners may have seen the coming destruction of their kingdom and traveled to Judah to preserve, preserve historical text. And the southern kingdom, however, also faced the threat of, of the Assyrians. And in the days of King Hezekiah, the king rebelled against the Assyrians and nearly faced demise of his own kingdom. But miraculously, the Lord saved Jerusalem. The city and the king escaped a horrible fate. And the pages of history feature the cries of the Assyrian victims. And, and they run red with their blood, the streets of Assyria. And the Assyrians enacted some of the worst forms of torture and punishment on their victims. History gives many accounts of the cruelty that knew no bounds. Jonah was not the only person who hated the Assyrians, and near the end of the Assyrian Empire, numerous subjects revolted. Their rebellions went beyond achieving victory or freedom. They wanted to punish the Assyrians for their brutality. And have you ever thought about what the roots of hatred really mean and, and how do we avoid it? Hate starts from negative assumptions. It starts from images and beliefs about a certain group or a person and the negative assumptions are called stereotypes and perhaps the greatest human tragedy is the one that feeds all the others is hatred. Most every tragedy that happens in life is fueled by one thing and that's hatred. It's remarkable to see how long people will hold on to hatred. It takes various forms. It comes in resentment, it comes in anger, it comes in passivity, and so on. But underlying hatred's many forms, the end result of hatred will always be hurt. Hurt feelings are incredible, powerful motivators. And instead of efforts to move past or heal from hatred, many continue to hold on to negative feelings year after year after year. And why is it that people prefer to hold on to hatred? Why would people want to hold on to hate rather than move past it 
and live a life of peace? Why do people fueled by hatred assault others with their hostility time and time again? Do they do it out of pride? A set of principles that have become warped over time or is it a psychological, psychological state of emotional collapse in an irretrievable state of wounding? What can you and I do if we find ourselves filled with this same hate that we know can be so powerfully destructive? I think the first step to moving beyond hatred comes down to first finding an altar and seek God to help us to get over and let go of the hate that we are feeling. And we must release the stress of hate and the strain of hate within ourselves. And letting go is doable. It's not necessarily easy, but you can let go of hate. History makes the Assyrians seem completely irredeemable due to their ruthlessness. And since God often punished the wicked for going too far, Jonah did have a a reason to believe that God would give the Assyrians a more than justified, well-deserved punishment. But God, however, felt something besides anger when he looked at the Assyrians in Nineveh. He recognized the desperate need of humanity. And just like God always does, he felt mercy for them. And while we often think of God reaching out for just one person, God wants to redeem and bring salvation not only to individuals, but He wants to save whole towns, cities, and countries. He wants to save the world. And that's why we can never give up on praying for our community and city. Does it get discouraging when we don't see these altars full? Yes. Does it get discouraging when we go for long terms of time without somebody being baptized? Sure it does. But Brother Larry, along with others, mention it all the time. There's a revival coming of the likes that this world has never seen. We're fixing to experience something in these last days that our forefathers only dreamed about and preached about and talked about, but we're going to be a part of it. We'll see souls saved that we never would have imagined would be open to receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so because of that, we have got to be prepared when the Lord brings in the harvest. And so when they come through those back doors, if we've got hate or malice or envy or strife in our heart, we lose. We lose. We won't be a part of God's plan to help them. He has a plan that can challenge our human ideas about judgment. We may see the punishment of the Lord as a righteous act. If a city behaves wickedly, then we may feel that justice is, is justified. But however, when a city is punished, many innocents, many innocent people get caught up in the calamity. We just talked about World War II and the six million Jews that were killed. But there was also five million innocent people killed, civilians that was not part of the war killed because of harsh judgment that was brought. Wars, natural disasters, and other problems come at a heavy, heavy price. Nevertheless, we may wonder why God would go to so much lengths to save a city like Nineveh, wicked city, an evil empire. Perhaps the Lord chose to show such mercy to teach us a lesson that we all make mistakes. 
And sadly, sometimes our sin seems so great that we think we've gone way too far and that we've gone beyond the reach of God's love. But I'm here to tell you this morning, nothing could be further from the truth. Our own disappointment in ourselves and the voices of judgmental people as well as the enemy of our soul make us feel as though we can never find our way back to God. And we may believe that we're gone too far, but if the Lord can love a city like Nineveh and show grace and compassion and mercy to all those people despite their sins, then we know that God's love has no limits. You know, what are some of the ways that the Lord has shown limitless love to you? Think about that for a minute, just for a moment. Think about just one time God has shown limitless love in your life. Can you think of one? I can. I can certainly think of many, but probably the one that runs to the forefront of my mind is as I walked away from God as a teen and for many years lived a rebellious life towards God. But thank God for His limitless love and compassion that He had for me. And you know what? Without malice, without judgment, without wrath, He allowed me to walk right back into the arms of His love. Not only that, He had a church ready that loved me and welcomed me. And I found a place where I could come and worship and not be judged. And so now, it's up to me. It's up to us to provide the same atmosphere of love for whomever else God brings through those doors. Jonah knew about the love and mercy of God and unfortunately he saw the Lord's compassion as detrimental to his own desires. And ironically, Jonah rebelled against the Lord for this very odd reason. In explaining his disobedience to the Lord, the errant prophet said in Jonah 4 and 2, I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Despite knowing about God, Jonah did not know truly God. He was banking on God's kindness and banking on God's grace and his mercy and his slow to anger that he could rebel against God and that it would be okay. And because of his skewed vision of the Almighty, Jonah held out the horrible hope that the Lord would pour out judgment on the Assyrians. He figured if I'll just walk away, there won't be nobody to help these people or to, or to bring the Lord to these people and he'll eventually pour out wrath on them. But at the same time, he knew the other side of God. He knew that the Lord could be forgiving rather than embracing the mercy of God. Jonah feared what it might mean for him and his reputation as a prophet. And even though the Lord told Jonah to share a message of repentance with Nineveh, Jonah had no desire to participate in their salvation. So imagine being given the opportunity to preach one of the world's greatest revivals with the assurance of widespread repentance. We've already talked about how great the city of Nineveh was. It was a, a trading place. It was strategically placed there. It was uh, people from all over came there to trade, to buy and to sell. But imagine missing out on the assurance of a widespread repentance only to run away 
instead of embracing the call. And that's what Jonah did. He fled to Tarshish. That would be the same as you and I today. We know what's coming. We know there's a great revival coming. That would be the same as you and I today sitting at the house and saying, no, I'm not going to participate. too much work. I'm not going to participate in that. I'm, uh, there's a friend's day coming. There's visitors coming. We, we, we want to provide things, but I, I'm, that's, too, that's too much work. I'll sit at the house and let somebody else do that today. That's, that's in essence what Jonah did. And we do the same thing when we take that approach to the things of God. The opening chapter of Jonah gives the prophet's downward journey. He went down to Joppa. He went down to the ship and then down into the lower part of the ship. And eventually, he found himself going down into the sea, being swallowed by the great fish and heading even deeper into the depths of the sea. Jonah's life was a real downer. And nothing has changed. When you walk away from the love and protection of God, there's nowhere to go but down. I assure you, if you have not made that mistake in your life, and I say this shamefully, I can tell you don't make that mistake because there is nowhere but down. The world will paint a picture that if you'll just walk out those doors and come to them, all of the beautiful things they can give you. And for a season, it may seem that way. But I assure you the end result is death. It is, it is a horrible, horrible place to be at. In the midst of this terrible ordeal, Jonah, Jonah knew that the Lord was with him in this watery version of hell that he found himself in. Jonah had gone down as far as humanly possible. And the height of his rebellion had taken him down to the bottoms of the mountains. And so Jonah's plight brings to mind the words of the psalmist, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. And if I make my bed in hell... Behold, thou art there. Thankfully, the flea in Jonah realized that he could not escape the Lord. In his odd predicament, Jonah remembered the Lord. He remembered the God of mercy and he cried out to him. And in his prayer, the prophet promised to sacrifice unto the Lord with the voice of thanksgiving because Jonah recognized the salvation comes from the Lord. And you and I too must repent of our rebellion. Perhaps we never intended to stray away from the Lord and perhaps we started out with lofty goals. We wanted the Lord to use us. We might have hoped the Lord would reveal a prophetic word to us and we might have found ourselves fervently praying in a service for God to take us to higher heights and deeper depths. But then rebellion crept in. We find ourselves descending to the wrong kinds of depths. We... We headed in the opposite direction of God's plan. And I, I'm not just talking about backsliding and walking out on God in the church today. I'm, I'm also referring to us when we become rebellious and decide, well, if it's not going to be done this way, then I'm not going to participate in the outreach. If they don't sing the songs that I like, then I'm not going to worship. If all he's going to do is preach about righteous living and soul winning, then I'm not going to sit through that whole sermon. And it's during these troubling times of our own making that we must seek the face of the Lord and we must repent of our rebellion and we have to recognize that salvation only comes from the Lord. 
don't raise your hand and certainly don't say it out loud. But think about how we've acted sometimes when we don't get what we want or when it don't go our way. We pout up, fold our arms, have a bad attitude about the things taking place in the church and the things of God, act like a petulant child, to be honest. I'm not being disrespectful. And we wonder why God sometimes has to take extreme measures to encourage us to repent. He loves us so much that he's willing to go to the extreme to try and draw us back. And I'm so glad he does. Because of Jonah's repentance, God gave Jonah a second chance, causing the great fish to spit out Jonah on dry land. The mission, however, remained the same. And that's the way it'll be sometimes. The things that we don't want to do for God and we rebel against God and perhaps walk away from what he's asking us to do but then repent and come back and we think, well, that's over with. Now we can move on. Don't be surprised if what God was wanting you to do before you walked out is the same thing you're going to have to do. You still got to do the will of God. The prophet, he still needed to journey to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance. But Jonah still hated the Ninevites and wished for their destruction. I've often wondered, how would you spend three days in the belly of a whale and know it's the divine hand of God that caused him to spit you out on the beach and you still have hate for somebody? If Jonah can go through all that and still have hate, it makes us want to cause to think how much hate's in my heart. How, how much really, how much hate is in my heart. Nevertheless, Jonah, he preached a message of repentance. He warned of the overthrow of the city in 40 days and if things did not change. And his message worked. The people proclaimed a fast and everyone participated from the greatest to the least. Even the king put on sackcloth and ashes and the people trusted in the possibility that the Lord would turn and repent of his fierce anger and they would be saved. Here's Jonah though. He's, he's still wishing to see the destruction of the city. Preached a message of repentance. Seeing the, mirac the miraculous results of it. People fasting, people praying. And he's still wishing death on them. This perplexed prophet prepared a booth on the east side of Nineveh and waited for the fireworks to start. He hated them so much he wanted to hang around and watch them all die. We know from the Bible that the Lord prepared a, a gourd to provide shade over Jonah, Jonah and he rejoiced in the respite from the sun that this plant, this gourd had offered him. But yet the next day he felt as though tragedy had struck him. Because through the night a worm eat the gourd. And the gourd withered, removing the shade that had covered Jonah. And the Lord sent a strong east wind to trouble Jonah as the sun beat down upon him and he wished to die. And the Lord questioned whether Jonah should feel angry. We read that in the opening text. The Lord questioned whether Jonah should feel angry due to the loss of the gourd. And like a child, like a child, Jonah claimed that he had a right to be angry. 
even unto death. And then the Lord showed Jonah the lesson he had wanted to teach the prophet all along by providing the gourd. And Jonah had pity on the gourd even though he did not work for it. He didn't make it grow. He didn't water it. He didn't nourish it. The gourd sprung up in the night. And then it perished at night. And if Jonah cared so much for the gourd, then the Lord asked the prophet why the Almighty should not spare the great city of Nineveh. Because it didn't have a whole lot of gourds in it. It had a whole lot of people. And that's why God wanted to spare the city of Nineveh because he loves people. And the book of Jonah gives God the last word about the power of his mercy. And you ever wonder why we sometimes feel we have a right to be angry? It's childish when you think about it really and if, we, if we're really honest with ourselves. I can think of times that I've become angry and when it's all over I, I look at it from the outside looking in and I think to myself, what was I thinking? It was really silly to be angry over that. To be honest, there's sometimes that I've been angry when it's all finished and over. I'm embarrassed of the way I acted and the, the anger that I displayed. And we should all be careful. It'd be easy to sit here and listen to this story this morning and throw rocks at Jonah. But we should all be careful about judging Jonah too harshly because everyone in this house has had the same feelings for those who have wronged us. And the Lord, however, He calls us to go against our human nature and He, he asks us to rejoice in His mercy for our enemies. Even if we feel like they deserve punishment, we cannot know all the struggles they face. Sister Amy's second prayer point this morning was on this very thing, rejoicing for our enemies. That's easy to roll off the tongue. But if you think about rejoicing over someone that you hate, it's a hard thing to do. But that's what God is asking us to do. Struggles or troubles will not actually help them to be better people, but mercy might. Therefore, I will rejoice when God shows mercy to my enemies, even if others don't think that it makes any sense. And even if I don't think it makes any sense. I want you to think about who in your life may need mercy rather than judgment. And I challenge us as individuals, if there's a name that comes to your mind, and again, don't, don't be ashamed of that. We're all humans. I'm not going to ask you to lift your hand or write it down on a piece of paper and pass it to the front, who you hate. But if there's a name that comes to mind, why don't we spend the next week in our prayer closet and our prayer time asking God to show us what he sees. Root out this judgmental mindset and to let us see the lost world through his eyes. There was a short story entitled The Interlopers and it features two warring families. They were engaged in generations of hatred over a small strip of land with good gain. Ultra von Gradwitz and George Zeneman currently contest the property, but the trouble began in the days of their grandfathers when a lawsuit gave this swath of land to the Gradwitz family. 
The Xenomans never stopped hunting on the land and the feud continued with no end in sight. The two men, they hated each other with intense fury. And on a night when the forest was full with activity, Grodwitz guessed that his enemies and his men had stirred up the animals. Ulrich, however, hunted another type of game, hoping to end his foe. And as Xenoman stepped around a large beech tree, he sighted his enemy directly in front of him. And despite the hatred that ruled their hearts, the men hesitated to raise their weapons. It is one thing to detest someone, but it's another thing to kill someone. Before either man could make a fatal decision, a storm intervened and Crashing lightning struck the beech tree with limbs and debris falling on the enemies, leaving them both incapacitated. And even in their weakened state, their personal vendettas refused to die. Xenoman spoke of the justice of Ulrich being trapped in this thieved territory, and Ulrich seemed certain that his men would find him, release him, and destroy this trap poacher. So here is two men that hate each other. A tree has basically fell on them and pinned both of them to the ground beside one another. But yet fueled by their undying anger, they vowed to quarrel to death, trapped by a fallen tree laying on the ground. He brief, Ulrich briefly stopped berating his enemy and focused on freeing his own arm that was hung. And upon getting it out, he drank from his canteen and he attempted to transform the vessel and into an olive branch and throw it at George so he could reach the canteen if he, if he threw it to him. And George refused to take a drink from an enemy. But Ulrich continued his quest for peace. He told George that he would treat him as a guest on his hunting grounds and he would show hospitality, hospitality to him. He spoke of burying the hatchet and becoming friends and George discussed ending the feud and riding into town together to surprise everyone in the market square. He envisioned Ulrich hunting on his land and he wondered what would happen if neither encountered interlopers to continue feeding the fiery feud. George agreed to be Ulrich's friend. Both men began shouting together to draw their men to them. After their verbal he healing, each hoped that his men would arrive first to free the other. Finally working together, the men had achieved something. Ulrich saw nine or ten figures in the distance, and George asked Ulrich, who were they? And Ulrich gave a strange laugh, and he said, they're wolves. The story reveals it's never too late to mend a grudge. But still, there can be enormous consequences for delaying mercy and compassion. And like Jonah and these battling neighbors, we must seek peace while we still have the chance because the wolves will come. And the most important thing we can do in our lifetime is to be full of the Holy Ghost, ready to meet Jesus and ready to do the work of the kingdom, whatever he requires of us. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning with me. We have a responsibility, not only as individuals, but we have a responsibility as a church to make this place a safe haven. 
a hospital, if you will, for those that are sick, for those that are lost, and for those that are wounded. And I say this respectfully, but shame on us should some lost soul come through those doors and find a church that's in disarray, can't get along with each other, can't get behind a pastor, can't participate in anything going on. Shame on us if we don't provide a place where the love of God abounds and there's grace and mercy all over the house and when they walk through those doors, all they can feel is the love and the peace of God and His people. That's our obligation and that's our responsibility this morning. Would you lift your hands with me? Father, I love you and I'm so eternally grateful for the power of the Holy Ghost and what you mean in our lives. I ask you to help us, God, to touch us. God, search my heart over. I want to be like David, God, and search my heart. If there's any unclean thing, God, I'm asking you to root it out. If there's hatred, if there's bitterness, if there's strife, if there's envy, God, I'm asking you to clean me out, renew my spirit, renew my mind, God, and help me become the vessel that you want me to be. And I thank you for that, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.